atrial fibrillation is an irregular heartbeat. You normally associate one. Yep. Yeah, normally associate <laughs> with older people and, and heart attacks. Or mature. The toughest Ironman race been on record. 100% humidity, no cloud cover, no shade. You literally were watching people on the run course fall over. Most people back up their schedule. It is meeting after meeting after meeting after meeting. They don't prepare, they rock in, they've got a piece of paper thrown in front of them. They kind of look at it quickly and go, okay, what are we doing next? People are ready for it is CEO legacy. And so that is what mark you're gonna leave on the world. What is your real why and purpose? This episode is brought to you by Nail It and Scale It, the world's leading fast growth program for businesses. If you have ever wanted to grow your business faster than what you can right now, if you need to make more revenue, if you need more leads, if you need more clients, if you need to know how to plan your business in a strategic way in order to hit big goals, if you need to learn how to scale your business and grow your team and your business so that you have more freedom, then this program is for you. Imagine three days immersed with me where we cover all aspects of business. But we do it from an immersive but also an execution standpoint. We execute every step of the way and we're looking at five key areas we're looking at your psychology we're looking at your marketing your sales your leadership and we're looking at your planning and how we integrate these five key areas to grow your business and your brand quickly so if you'd like to find out more information kerwinray.com ladies and gentlemen it is my absolute pleasure to welcome to unstoppable today craig johns how are you craig oh it's good i'm good thank you it's great to be on the podcast Mate, it's great to have you here. And um, mate, I've been going through uh, when your when your brief, or I should say your bio, was put in front of me a couple of months ago. I was actually quite interested. Um, you've got a bit of a bio there, mate. Now I know we're going to go into that today, but you know, you started off as an elite athlete. You competed at the Ironman level, uh, Ironman level, World Championship triathlete level. Uh, mate, you've kind of done a, an enormous amount, but you've come full circle. You now do a lot, obviously, in the corporate space as well. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's a pretty epic journey that you've had, but I'm curious from our perspective, you know, everyone says, where did it all begin? But when you tell your story, like, where does it all begin in the, in the context of where you are now? How did we get here? <laughs> Good question. So I grew up on a, on a farm in Taranaki in New Zealand. Uh, it's a, you know, very, uh, kind of relaxed part of the world and, and obviously very green. And I grew up in a family full of athletes and and coaches so my granddad was a great cricket player and coach and then on the other side my other granddad was uh, in field hockey and and dad was just full of sport when he wasn't working on the farm and so performance was always there and there was just this massive competitiveness inside our family whether it was a card game or um, chipping golf balls around the backyard at Christmas time or whatever it may be, there was always competition on. I went to a very small school. And when I say small, there were 28 children from the ages of five to 12. When I first arrived and there were seven when I left. And it was yeah, this right. fascinating place where you got to learn leadership at a very young age. So as a five-year-old, you'd have you know maybe the 10 or 12-year-olds who were actually teaching you in the class. And then as you went through the ages, you started teaching those below you and working with those above you. And so I, I was talking to a friend that's about this. Right? That's actually the Montessori philosophy, uh, the Montessori work in three age brackets so that you've got someone below that you can teach, someone at your own level that you can peer relate and someone above you who can um, teach you and they can mentor you. That's really interesting. Yeah, so it was a fascinating world to be mm. in. And you're, you, you were learning across and and below and above and just I, I think that really grounded me from a leadership point of view 
Uh, sport was when I was. That's a big word to use at such an early age, though. Wouldn't you agree? Like you know, uh, so did you start demonstrating leadership traits early in life as a result of being surrounded by so much competitiveness, or at the time was it just you being a kid and getting out there and um, yeah, having a red hot go and then just working it out as you went. I didn't think of leadership at the time, but yeah, as you said, yeah. red hot go. And for me, I was just so dedicated to succeeding in whatever I did. And, you know, yeah. whether that was being first to finish um, a, a test at school or whether it would be to, you know, whatever ball or bat or or swimming pool was thrown in front of me, I, I wanted to be the best and, and finish first. And it was a, from a humble point of view, but I just had that real desire. And that just continued all the way through to where I am now. Um, and so when you were young, obviously you had you were surrounded by a plethora of different sports, but you're in New Zealand. So I'm going to assume that there's limited access to what you can compete in. So what was the first competitive uh, sport that you got yourself into? So swimming uh, as a three-year-old. Okay. And so I was kind of thrown in the pool and I suppose the competitive aspect probably took over around five or six years old where I started to actually do some competition. So really oh, young. Shit, five or six. Mm. And yeah, tadpole. no pushing from the family. It was just, they wanted me to get in the water and get used to it. And I just, you know, that competitiveness was there. Uh, field hockey as well at the age of five. I, actually, I don't even think I was five. I think my sister was in the field hockey team that my dad was coaching and I just tagged along and wanted to have a crack. And so I had this beautiful aspect of an individual sport with wow. swimming and yep. this team sport with hockey and, and hockey kind of progressed. And that was kind of probably the lead one for a while. And when I got to the age of 13, I made a premier senior men's team. So I was very young and that team is quite phenomenal. It holds a record in New Zealand for the longest streak without losing a game in any team sport in New Zealand. And they, wow. If I, we're not sure exactly the number. It's somewhere between 240 and 280 games without losing one. And yeah, so wow. I had five years with them. We never lost a game, obviously. And I'm sure all blacks could say that. They're not far behind. And, and so to get that component at such a young age, to be in that team of people, you know, sometimes we only had 10 players, you know, it's 11, 11 a side game. We had 10 players, we'd still find a way to win or draw. And, and it was just an incredible environment. And it wasn't about beating another team. It was always about how could we progress the game? How could we make the game better? And it was a fascinating for, you know, for sort of 15 people in a town of 5,000 people that would win the premiership competition every time and they went 16 years straight and have i think now have won the 23 of the last 24 uh, premier seasons so that was a pretty surreal experience to go through that's pretty phenomenal and is this where you learned because obviously from um from hockey you then progressed into other sports what was that what what came after hockey uh, so hockey, so hockey, I finished at 17. So if I come back yep. a little bit at the age of nine, I did my first triathlon. Right. And, so you were doing both concurrently. Yeah. And, yeah. Right. And so, you know, I talked about a, a town of 5,000 people and that's including sort of regional around it on the farms as well. And there were national champions in triathlon by that time as juniors and, and people winning races. And so it was just you know, you went, okay, I went swimming. Oh, well, what else do we do? Oh, well, you run, 
you run at school and you bike to school and it was just a natural progression. So I got into triathlon and I'd kind of just do it when I wasn't swimming. And I got to the age of 16 and that was when I had my first heart problems. And I was actually told to give up sports. And um, as you can probably hear- What were the heart problems you were identified at 16? So I had atrial fibrillation and vasovagal syncope. So atrial fibrillation is an irregular heartbeat. You normally associate- that one. Yep. (laughs) Normally associate with older people and and heart attacks. Or mature, better looking. (laughs) Yeah. And and they couldn't understand why I was having it at that age. And mm. I, I spent a bit of time in hospital uh, trying to figure it out and with a lot of cardiologists. Yeah, right. And me being me, it was like, unless you can show that it's going to kill me, I'm going to find a way to get back to sport and, and give it a crack. And so within a year, I was both New Zealand teams or New Zealand squads for hockey and triathlon and just that's been the rest of my life since has been managing the heart and, and then doing whatever I can at the best that's as, so interesting. as possible. So at, at what point did you realize that you develop a level of grit and that ability to be able to push through that was beyond, you know, so many other people around you? Cause I'm going to assume that because you were surrounded by such an elite level of performance of a family, it would have just seemed like normal to perform at a very high level, you know, and you go in and you get into hockey, you, you get, you, you exceed in that triathlons, you exceed in that. At what point did you take a step back? Because again, you're in a town of 5,000 people. You, you may mean I've got a limited exposure. Did you go, shit, I'm actually, I'm actually pretty, uh, I'm pretty hardy. I'm, I'm, and I'm at the top of my game considering. I don't know if grit ever come across my mind. It was just like, really? to me, it just felt like that's what you do. That's what you do in life. And yeah, okay. there was a point and it, and it is probably my deep, why around what I do now and have pretty much done my whole life. And that is, I did struggle a bit with why aren't people healthier, happier and hungrier for success? Yeah. Because for me, that was normal. And I couldn't understand why some people would just go with the flow and waste their talent. And that has been a key driver to everything I've done in life. Yeah, right. And so at what point did the heart condition start becoming serious enough to start preventing you from either competing or prevent or, or even training uh so 2000 where are we so i've been about 21 years i was 21 years old and so okay. i was trying to faint three or four times a day for a whole month so i couldn't finish my final exams at uni uh i actually one day was swim teaching in the pool with an 18 month old kid when it happened and i managed oh. to roll out and put the kid on the side before i blacked out and uh couldn't drive and they couldn't figure out what was going on at that point. It was separate to the actual fibrillation and vasovagal syncope that I also I still get now. And so there was some electrical fault and all they could do is stick in a pacemaker. And so I've had a pacemaker since then. At that point, I decided to take a break from sport and really focus on my career. So I was doing a lot of work around sports science with some of the professional teams, Olympic teams in New Zealand and coaching um, you know, the top top junior swim club in New Zealand and, and surf lifesaving. So didn't like to kind of <laughs> take a break from kind of a full on life. But for me, it was yeah. like, let's focus on that. And it took probably three years and 17 kgs later before I, my friend motivated me to go, you know what, let's give triathlon a crack again. Why don't you sign up for an Ironman in a year's time? And, uh, that, that was, that was the second it. second coming of sport. <laughs> and then what happened then? Did you go? You obviously got back in, or did the and the, did you stay in, or the the heart just pushed you out again? 
so where are we? So I lost 17 kgs in that first year. Um, I right. actually just moved to Taiwan. So I went from sort of cool in New Zealand conditions to hot and humid and uh, in, a, in a completely new environment. And it was, you know, just love being there. Um, had a really good build up to the first Ironman a year later uh, until a week before. <laughs> and I managed to pick up hemorrhoids. And oh, what so a shit. I As went a into... triathlete, that's not fun. No, not fun. So I managed to... <laughs> so I managed to, and I was in Austria, so I, you know, I didn't know too many people that spoke English and was staying in a... <laughs> How do you explain that one to a doctor? Ah, you get grapes and all of it. <laughs> and so I had a hemorrhoid operation, I think, six days out from, oh, wow. from the event. And I was like, look, am I going to be okay on race day? And they put these, what I describe as elephant nappies on for uh, three or four days. And then they said, no, you'd be right. And I got in the race, had a fantastic start, was, you know, sort of in the top 20 out of the water and felt really good and got to 50K on the bike. And next minute I had to start vomiting. I couldn't keep any water down. I couldn't get any food down and managed to get off the bike and went, you know, look, I'm still feeling good here. I haven't had the best bike, but I feel okay. And all right, let's keep going. And I remember getting 21 <laughs> K into the run and went, I have got to get some food and there's no way I'm going to last unless I get food. So I sat down at the aid station and it was quite ironic. It was right next to where the finish line was. And so I could hear the announcers going, uh, congratulations, Rainer Tissink from South Africa. You are our 2005 Ironman Austria champion. And I'd been training with him a little bit in the couple of weeks leading up to it and kind of having dinners and stuff. And so <laughs> I was like, yep, heard that. And then I can't remember anything else and until I woke up in the medical tent. And I, was, <laughs> I remember this clearly. I asked them, I said, how did I go? And they looked at me and they were kind of <laughs> laughing, going, what do you mean? And I was like, no, how did I go? And they said, look, I, we found you at the 23K mark running down the wrong road, telling us that you were um, telling us to leave you alone because I was in second place and I was catching the winner. <laughs> That's gold. So that was... Um, <laughs> And, wow! And what that was, you, that level of um, yeah. That, what how, what happened? Just so, delusion, heat stroke, everything combined. Just uh, obviously the hemorrhoid operation. The body just wasn't uh, fully yeah, right. comprehending it, and maybe some of the medication. I don't know. And wow, that's uh, amazing. Okay, and so what happens next? You're looking at a doctor. She's laughing at you. <laughs> and you know, I think, and then it sets in mentally. The hardest thing about someone who Actually, it doesn't matter who you are. The hardest thing about an Ironman race is, you know, there's disappointment if you don't do as well as you want to. You know, people put so much expectation on. But not being able to finish one is even harder because there's so much that goes into it. I mean, you sacrifice, yeah. you make choices based around, yeah. I want to perform. And, you know, as I said, I lost 17 kgs and here I am going into Ironman and you don't finish it. Now that sits in your head for a whole year until you do the next one. So it haunts you. Uh, and mm. so they was pretty driven after that to make sure when I went back the second time that uh, we finished and we finished well. And you can't, you went back another three times after that. Is that right? Yeah. So three times, another time in Austria, uh, then yep. did 
Ironman China, which is the toughest Ironman race that has been on record. Um, 33% of the field did not finish. It was 42 degrees, 100% humidity, no cloud cover, no shade. And you literally were watching people on the run course fall over. Wow. And I, I had a, you know, I was fifth out of the water in great shape, ninth at 90 K and then just, I could feel the heat affecting me and I felt okay, but my legs just wouldn't move. And I just cruised along, got to the end of the bike ride. And I remember jumping off the bike and running along the, <laughs> I don't know if you call it running. I was absolutely sprinting across the, the concrete. It was so hot. It was blistering. And I sat down in transition, which I never do. And I remember sitting there, eating a banana, putting on sunscreen and just clicked them on. And you know, you know what? I'm just going to go for it because if all else fails, I can walk across the finish line. And so I went from 135th uh, to 35th in the end. And uh, I think I had the 10th fastest run, which was pretty slow in Ironman terms, uh, which is three hours 50. But when you understand that the first person who normally runs two hours 44 ran three hours 31, <laughs> you can tell how tough it was. And, yeah. and so that was fascinating. And that got me to um, Kona, the world champs. Um, and then, uh, kind of the second medical thing really kicked in. And that was my hip. I had osteoarthritis, porosis, bone spurs, cyst formation. I had no labrum left. Uh, and because of the pacemaker, they couldn't even run an MRI on it, uh, because oh, of the, the, yeah. the magnetic aspects. And so I ended up doing the race. I was at a point where when you look at the photos, my back's all kind of crunched up when I'm on the bikes and trying to protect the hip and I could only run five minutes some days before it would give up and ended up, you know, for me, I was really happy with the race. I ended up finishing it and yeah. I got one more year and then the doctor said, that's it. You, you have to give up. And you know, at 29, most people go, Oh, that might've been crushing. But for me, it was relief. Um, I was yeah. sick of waking up in tears every night and, uh, I was probably ready for another new chapter in my life. And you end up getting the hip replacement. How did that take? Yeah, good. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, no, it went well. I was off crutches within a couple of days. Um, and back then that was pretty much unheard of. It would normally be six weeks. And I think I led a, tri I ran a triathlon camp about eight weeks later and we did over 600 kilometers of riding. So no uh, re shit. Recovered pretty quick, but that was the end of my triathlon days. Yeah, you're a beast, aren't you? And so from there, obviously, your competitive days were done. Do you still train much anymore? I try and get out on the mountain bike uh, okay. five days a week, sometimes swim. Um, haven't done, obviously, with COVID. Uh, but yep. yeah, love love the mountain bike. It allows me to switch off from life, um, from everything. It's probably one of the only things that I can do that. Uh, along with golf. So I normally play competitive golf as well. Yeah, right. What, what are you swinging off, my friend? Uh, five or six. Oof, wait, I'll have to give you a crack one day. I'm a healthy 34. Yeah. I'll give you a real run for your money, my friend. <laughs> so from there, you you obviously had the bug. You, you've had a background, I think, at this point. You, you mentioned that you were studying sports science. Um, what else did you study at university? Because I have a feeling this kind of helped with the transition of what came next. So you started coaching athletes after you retired. From, comp from competition? Uh, so I had been coaching all the way through 
uh, right. sort of okay. I from the age of 15. And so that that's always that's been right. a big part of my life. I love coaching and things. Uh, obviously, once I retired... Were you from, professionally coaching other athletes while, as, yeah. as a competitor yourself? Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So at that point when the hip and I retired, I can, I raced mountain bike for a couple of years as well, uh, sort of semi-pro level and road cycling. But during that time I was coaching, uh, I went and coached the national team in Taiwan, which was a fascinating experience. So you, you have 800 athletes, all different sports. The only other foreigner there was a Belarusian boxing coach, uh, who had some very interesting strategies. Um, some of them spoke English, most of them could write it. And so I was fully immersed living in that environment and got a real kind of rude awakening to how things work in Asia as well. Like I'd lived there for seven years prior, to, uh, sorry, five years prior to it. But I started to, you know, you had to always make it their idea. And you realize that said, yes, you're in control, but no, you weren't. They always yeah. had the finger on the pulse. And so <laughs> everything was set up. Yes, you're head coach, you can make all the decisions I get in there on day one and they go, Oh, by the way, we're sending the athletes you've been working with for the last three or four years. They're going with another coach to China for the next three months. And you've got these new athletes. Uh, and none of them spoke English apart from the word. Oh, hello. Wow. Oh, that's going to be fun. So no translator. Uh, but what happened in that three months is I learned more about communication than I have in the rest of my life. And yeah, the, the power of observation and just watching people and you, you learn the subtleties because you can't ask them a question as easily as you could someone who speaks your own language. And for me that it, I learned to read signs, you know, it was just a subtle shift in the eyes, subtle shift in, in the way someone moved it, it you could feel it. You could even hear when they say swam or ran, you could feel you could listen to it and you could understand what was going on. Uh, and that power has, you know, wow, really helped education. me as a coach. Yeah. yeah. How long was that for? Uh, so we ended up being a year that was full on in that wow. situation. With that team. Yeah. That's incredible. Team. And how did, the t how did the team perform at the end of the year? Yeah, pretty good. Well, we had a tough, uh, once I got in there, I, I got told I'll buy the, after six months ago, oh, by the way, uh, you have to have, athletes in the top 10 by Asian right. champs. Otherwise there's no more funding. And so I'd gone from a very secure job where I was earning really good money to earning one fifth of that with the national team. And I was doing it purely for love and just love what I was doing. Uh, so we got athletes from, I think they were sitting around 17th, 18th. We got them down to 11th. We were one away from securing the funding. Uh, and it was good. You know, it was a great uh, one year with them. Uh, and then I was able to take some of those athletes on after that to win Ironman championships and also oh, you know, perform at a high level. So it was really good. And at what point did you cross the bridge into the, into the business world, yeah. the corporate world? <laughs> yeah. So it was a few years later and I'd actually, okay. I had actually moved to uh, Saudi Arabia. Um, so I went from Taiwan to Saudi Arabia and decided at that point, I really wanted to focus on my master's in management at that time and so i had a really good job in saudi arabia where i could have 15 weeks holiday a year um you know it was just kind of a nine to five type role and earn good money but also study at the same time without having distractions uh and, and that's a whole different story as well so i'm there six months uh, when we first 
uh, signed the contract. Uh, my wife is from Taiwan. And uh, a week later, they kicked out, or the prince at the time kicked out all the Chinese because uh, if you know Saudi Arabia, you're either Muslim um, or you, um, you can have two religions. You can have, either have Muslim or you can have Christianity. And outside of that, not allowed any religion. So for me, who's not religious, I just put down Christianity on the form just to keep it nice and simple. Uh, but my wife being from Taiwan um, is, you know, obviously their natural religion is Buddhism um, being from those Chinese based countries. And yeah, the guy kicked them all out and, you know, you had these massive economic developments going in huge, big cities funded by Chinese. And it was just within seven days left. And so I asked the question, I said, look, is my wife going to be affected? And I said, no, she's from Taiwan. She'll be fine. And so we, uh, it took, <clears throat> went through four, uh, different visa processes and keep getting declined. And so I said, look at that point, you know, unless we can get a visa, I, I'm going to look at another role. And so I went to Thailand, got offered, always been offered a big job in Thailand. Um, and, and the most amazing sport, mind, health education, hospitality, kind of integrated facility, the only one like it in the world. And they flew me in, had a look at it and went, I've been an idiot not to take this. And the day I flew back, I arrived in and they said, oh, great news. We've been through the royal family and we've got your wife a visa. (laughs) (laughs) So so a great dilemma. And so in that time, we, we sat there and I just said, look, this is what's happened while I've been away. And... I said, look, my wife doesn't feel comfortable right now. I said, she's been declined, denied. How do you think she's going to feel when she comes in here when they've all been, you know, the Chinese been removed and it's been so hard to get this and they didn't seem to care. And so I gave them three months notice. They gave me seven days to leave. And Saudi Arabia is the hard, well, was then, it's a bit easier now, the hardest place to get into and the hardest country to leave. So you pretty much, wow. when you turn up, you give your passport, they give you an ID and they let you know when you can and can't leave type thing. So that was... Uh, that would have been interesting. And so it was at that point you 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 crossed over to the corporate world? Yeah. That's what pushed you over? Yeah. Yeah, so I've always had in my life that I, I, I love working with people and I just found with high-performance sport, you such a narrow group of people you get to work with. And yes, it's amazing, but it's a very, very lonely um, extremely lonely um, space to be in and the rewards can be amazing but there's a lot of times where you're working really hard to to find um, that success and so I felt with you know for me I wanted to go into the CEO space and you know work as a CEO because I could have a greater effect on people mm-hmm. and so I looked at opportunities and for me that is people look at me and go you know your individual sport it must you know you should be comfortable with that and I went well, there's something part of me that wants to help more people in this world. So that's where that started. And so what was your first gig and how did it, was there a natural transition? Because, you know, a lot of people want to get into the coaching space, whether it be the business coaching, executive coaching, or otherwise. And it's not always an easy transition because you go from being an athlete, which is, you know, which is one discipline. And you're now working in the business space, which is a different discipline because you've got a coach, but you've also got to sell, you've got to market, you've got to generate clients. And so how did that transition take place? Was it natural or did it happen as a result of, you know, serendipity? <laughs> so their first, their first role in Thailand, I was uh, so second in charge um, of 500 staff 
from 22 different countries and you know oh so that gig in thailand you were actually running the facility is that right yeah yeah so big change where you're managing huge amount of people and and a lot of politics you're dealing with a billionaire owner um amazing people in there you know we had everyone from the dalai lama right through to um you know jensen button formula one to complete beginners in the sport um just just a fascinating world to work in and you got high performance and people just wanting to get better all the time wow so and that was really interesting and then we got to a point where they brought in someone else and we didn't align in our beliefs and our morals and so i just felt it was time to leave and hence went to australia so worked and i'm still doing some work for them at the moment um, with triathlon act so been there six years uh, sort of running that program and over the last year and a half, that's when I've moved into also doing coaching CEOs and executives and, and leaders and you know, to be high performing leaders. And so, and so what are the, go ahead. Yeah, that's all right. So, so the transition to me, high performance is high performance. And yeah. so I've always well, been I was going to ask you, like, what's, what are, what are the key things that you brought over that you bring to a conscious level that when you break, when you work with an executive or a CEO, you go, right, okay, here's the model of performance. Like, what does that look like? And what do you normally take them through? Yeah, great. Good question. And, and there's so much transfer. And, you know, as I said, high performance is high performance. So it doesn't matter who you're working with, the same basic fundamentals come into play. And so the first things that really identify with the CEOs or executives I'm working with, I'm like, do you have the four basic fundamentals of performance right first? So are you eating well? Do you exercise? Do you free your mind? And are you recovering with purpose? And so unless you've got those four things right, it doesn't matter how talented you are, your ceiling will always be limited to your talent. So if you get those four things right, then you can raise the ceiling. But until you do that, that they're the limiting factors. And all those four things connect with cognitive function, with your mood, all sorts of things, as you'd be aware. And so they're the first four that I look at. And um, I'm sure, so walk me through those again. There's eating, eating, exercise, so nutrition. Yep. So nutrition, exercising daily, freeing the mind and recovering with purpose. Okay. And so I'm, I'm going to assume when you're working with an executive, there's going to be a few challenges when it comes to them adopting one or two of these four things. And to me, that's the real mark of a coach is, you know, anyone can give a framework, but how do you enroll these CEOs? Because I know you've worked with some quite, some quite large companies, but how do you enroll some of these executives and CEOs to do things that they're very well justified to say to you, well, look, mate, I'd love to you know, spend more time exercising or more time recovering or more time eating well, but I'm a busy fucking guy and you've got to understand I can't do that. And you and I know, well, that's not going to fly. There's got to be a change yeah. that takes place. How do you initiate that change? Yeah, so we sit down and we we talk them through around what they're currently doing, and then we ask them, okay, when you when you feel good, what is happening in your life? When things are going really well, what is happening in your life? What components are there? And then when it's not going well, what components aren't there? And generally, they will come up with, well, I'm not eating well, I'm not sleeping enough, um, I'm pushing too hard, I'm not spending enough time with the family, and I don't exercise. So once you get them to say it out loud, it generally starts to click. And then we just work on what's the most important thing first to start progressing with. And so how do you provide that layer of accountability to people in some cases don't, who don't have any? 
<laughs> that's it. Yeah. So some people have self-discipline and other people yep. need someone to provide that accountability. And it just depends on the person. Some, gotcha. I don't need, I don't need to provide much accountability at all. They can do that themselves. They, they go, okay, cool. Thank It's a goal. Let's put a goal in place and I can look after that. Others will need to check in, whether it be weekly or fortnightly. And we'll quite often put in like a little diary type thing, which allows them to track things as well. Uh, but as you know, it takes a good six to eight weeks, sometimes 12 weeks for new um, routines to embed. Yeah. So we we have to be with them for quite a, quite a while to get those working. And do you ever get any real stubborn fuckers who just won't do what you ask them to do? They're high performers in their own right by their results, but you're trying to get them to adopt things that in some cases are, you know, or change patterns that in some cases are decades old. And in those situations with those tough cookies, like is there a, is there, a, is there something you have in your toolbox that you pull out for those situations? Uh, sometimes they just say this is not working and let them alone because they're probably never <laughs> going to change. <laughs> and I don't like to do that, but sometimes you just have to be honest with them. I said, unless yep. you're willing to change, this is not going to work. And I'm not going to waste your money. I'm not going to waste my time. And it doesn't matter how good a CEO they are. Uh, and sometimes we need to take that next step. And we need to find what their clarity of their vision is because unless they have absolute clarity of their vision, then they don't know how to say no. It's very easy to say yes. So I sometimes will go to that and then come back and go, okay, well, once you have clarity of your vision, it's now easy for you to say no. And then you free up more time to do the things that help you perform to a higher level. And I think that's a game changer for most people. And when you ask them about what their vision is and if they stumble through it, if they can't actually, um, portray that then you'll nine times out of ten you'll find that they are saying yes to everything and they overload themselves and they're not very good at saying no because they they don't know why they need to say no they don't know what they're chasing what's next for you you've 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 conquered and dominated the area of competitive sports you you've moved into coaching at the athlete level you're now um you know moved into the business space what's next for from here uh, so, yeah, so for me, it is is fully focused on high performance leadership and it's working with CEOs and emerging leaders as well. Uh, and then also in the sport world. So what has been a byproduct when I went into just focusing on the CEOs and corporates, the sport world went, we like what you're doing. Does this apply to sport? Now, I thought when I start out with breaking the CEO code, which is around, it's just three as a framework for being a high performing leader. And the foundation I talked about before is just phase one. So there's five other phases. And so when I started doing that, they were like, okay, well, how does that work in sport? And so now I'm starting to build out frameworks for um, high performance sport organizations, or even a whole country, their sport system. And what's been fascinating is that, Coaches in sport are very good at being able to coach performance, but they're not very good at being high-performing themselves because their whole focus goes on the athlete. And yep. so we're doing some quite interesting work there at the moment and and looking at how we can make sure that when they get to, say, a you pinnacle... You see that also as a common trait with CEOs, that they spend so much time developing their team that they fucking forget to take care of themselves. It's very yeah. common, isn't it? Yeah, it's massive. So a good way to kind of show this from a high performance point of view, say you've got an Olympic period of four years at the beginning, the athletes are at the bottom of their performance curve. And if they get everything right, they'll be at the top of their performance curve come four years. 
when it comes to the coaches and high performance stuff, they're normally employed because they're the best at what they do. So they start at the top and then they go the opposite way because their contracts are based on the performance of the athletes at that pinnacle event. So they don't know whether they have another, <clears throat> another contract until those results are out most of the time. And it always finishes on that around that time. And so what happens is they, they narrow their focus, they put more time into it, they forget their relationships, they forget about themselves, and they go deeper and deeper. And they actually push too hard on the athletes. And so we actually find that the best performances will happen 90% of the time, will happen about a year out when it's qualifying time, when those two graphs cross over. And, <clears throat> and so it's about explaining to them around how we can make sure we can put them into a performance state by utilizing a lot of the skills that they use in sport. So periodization is something that they use in sport for athletes where you, um, you go through different cycles of stress and overload and then recovery and then performance will drop as is stress and overload, but then we'll come up during recovery. So what we start to do is apply that through CEO, uh, whether it's with a coach's coach periodization or with CEO's CEO periodization, where we look at a three to one cycle of, stress load and work, and then a one of recovery. And we look at that from a daily, weekly, monthly, yearly, and career basis. And most people don't even think about the career basis, but it is so important as well. Uh, and so we start to apply those principles. And that so makes a big difference. You're really taking the the professional athlete model and you're bringing it into the corporate space. I don't know if you, have you read the book, The Powerful Engagement by Tony Schwartz? No, not Similar. yet. Similar. Similar, um, you would love it, mate, very much up your alley. But um, yeah, I follow the same philosophy because again, it's so interesting that people don't understand performance from the perspective of both sides. The one side is in competition where you get to see the results, but the other side is getting getting to those results, which is rest, recovery, training, nutrition, you know, all of the critical things. And most CEOs, most you know, employees spend, you know, 85% of their time competing and maybe, you know, 10% of their time resting and maybe 1% of their time training, you know, and it's so interesting when you bring in the athletic performance model into the business environment, you know, you actually are focused on resting people, you know, you're, you're turning it around, you're focusing on training people, you're focusing on competition, but yeah, like you say, what did you call it? Periodical? Period periodization. Periodization. I love it. Periodization. What a fucking fancy name. That's yeah. great. So, so the second so phase of yes, that, so the second phase of the breaking the the coach code or breaking the CEO code, depending on who we're working with, is around performance. And there is the three P's. So we've got so we use CEO here. So CEO periodization, which we just spoke about. The CEO yep. presence. So presence is around what is your intention for the day. So how are you going to make sure that you prepare to go into a meeting? that it's not just about what information or the content it's around. Okay. What do you, what sort of energy do you need to bring? What type of performance level do you need to bring into that? What is your intention for that meeting um, or the interaction? And then what outcomes you're looking for and being able to make sure that they come in with the right body language, that they come in with the right energy levels and that they are prepared because you and I both know most people, back up their schedule. It is meeting after meeting, after meeting, after meeting. They don't prepare. They rock in. They've got a piece of paper thrown in front of them. They kind of look at it quickly and go, okay, what are we doing next? And so there's, there's no real leadership on that. And so some mm. of the work that I've started doing with the, the CEOs is going, okay, what's your calendar look like? 
what happens if we cut out 20%, 40%, 60% of those meetings and actually prepare for them? Will we get greater results because of that? And also the byproduct of that is then you start delegating that inf- that those meetings that you think you need to be at, but probably don't to your next level of staff or your next level of leaders and you can empower them as well. And then the third part's around high performance habits. So CEO um, performance, and that's looking at a lot of things like boundaries. What are your, mm. what are your boundaries in life? When do you, when are you on at work? When are you off? What are the cues to say, all right, well, I've now left the building and my focus is now on my family. How are you ensuring that uh, you get, enough sleep it's it's bringing in some of those foundation what are those performance habits every single day and so those three provide a really nice ecosystem for anyone in life to be able to start to perform at a higher level mate that's awesome and so there's two more what are they oh so there was CEO periodization yep so you were saying there was the five levels so okay okay yep cool yep so that's fine so we got foundation We've then yep. got performance. Then the third yep. level is influence. So it's the eight ways to right. own your own influence. So it's yep. still the first three levels are all about yourself being a high performing gotcha. leader. Then we go to leadership, which is around uh, being a you know, world-class leader. And then the fifth one is leading high performing teams. And number six, if people are ready for it, is CEO legacy. And so that is what mark you're going to leave on the world. What what are you? What is your real why and purpose and so for most people, we're still dealing in that kind of phase one, two, three, uh, getting, maybe getting into four. And, you know, to me, unless you've got those steps right, there's no mm-hmm. point going to legacy because you're not going to have the the leadership skills and stamina and ability and belief in yourself to actually achieve it. Um, I've had one CEO who I've gone straight to CEO legacy. The rest were always starting at one, two or three. Yeah, right. Fantastic. So, mate, where can people find out more information about this this model that you have, breaking the CEO code? Yeah, great. So, if you go to craigjohns.com.au, uh, so you can find information there. Um, I also have Energy to Perform, which is NRG, the number two, perform.com. And inside that is where we have the Active CEO podcast as well. Uh, right. So, similar to this show where we get to interview yep. some amazing leaders around the world. Oh, and we can... Great combine the philosophies of breaking the CEO code there. And so what's next from here, mate? Is there going to be a book coming out? Yes, we've got a book that's uh, due for the end of this year. Uh, so it'll take you through the framework of breaking the CEO code. Uh, so that's um, work in progress right now. Fantastic. Well, mate, thank you so much for coming to Unstoppable. Uh, dearly appreciated your time and your intelligence today. Thank you so much, Craig Johns. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure and love the work that you do for you know the people in the business world and and also leaders around the world as well so thank you thanks craig i appreciate it brother till next time mate ladies and gentlemen craig johns and this is unstoppable this episode was brought to you by nail it and scale it the world's leading fast growth program for business there you have it guys thanks for tuning in to unstoppable with me your host Kerwin ray and please do not forget to subscribe to our youtube channel where you get to see all of these interviews in the flesh. Share this podcast with your friends and drop me a review on iTunes. I would love to hear what you guys think and also let you know that your comments 
help make sure that we keep producing killer content just like this. And if you'd like to stay up to date with all of my movements, upcoming podcasts, events, and much more, please jump onto the website, kerwinray.com, and also check us out on all social media on the handle at Kerwin Ray. Thanks for joining us.